Hi, and welcome to the Silver Screen Queens podcast. Every week, we watch a movie and sit down here to talk about it. I'm Mel. I'm Katie. And we're your hosts. This week, we watched Rear Window, released in 1954 and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. There will be spoilers for Rear Window, but it's 59 years old. The Rear Window tells the story of a photojournalist, L.B. Jeffries, played by James Stewart. He's broken his leg and he's holed up in his one-bedroom apartment with nothing to do but stare out the window at his neighbours. One night, he thinks he sees a man murder his wife and starts to investigate. Now, that plot summary is maybe underselling it a little bit. <laughs> on the <laughs> that's surface... What, that's what the that, plot of the movie yeah. is. It's fine. On the surface, this is a murder mystery. But in reality, it is much, much more... Now, just full disclaimer right up front, this is my favourite movie of all time. Mm. So I'm quite excited about this. We are, Luckily, one of the local cinemas here in Canberra um, Palace Electric was is running vintage movies on a Sunday afternoon, so we decided last Sunday that we would go along and yeah. I was just I just had movies. this moment and I was like, no, we didn't. We saw it at Dendi, but I saw Alien at Dendi last night, and I saw this at Palace on Sunday. So I've just had sort of a retro movie you, weekend. You've been watching old movies, every- yeah. The uh, the two sort of arty cinemas in Canberra are having this fabulous competition where they keep they're both trying to show art house classics and old movies and we're, those movie lovers in Canberra are just benefiting from it. Anyway, on to Rear Window. Now, this movie is kind of amazing, but probably a lot of our listeners won't have heard of it. As a film student, I know all about it. I studied it at school. I studied it at uni. I think even if, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of Alfred Hitchcock's more well-known movies, not mm. up there with, you know, Psycho and the Birds, but still you know, right up in the top of yeah. sort of the Alfred Hitchcock canon. So uh, uh, if you know a bit about movies, you might know you, you about might, it. You might know about this one. Um, I think watching it now for the, I don't know, dozenth time perhaps, I, I've started to notice maybe a few more things about it. I think the thing I that appeals to me the most about it is it's that thing that we often keep coming back to on the podcast of simple stuff done well. Yeah, It's a simple story. It's a really simple set. Basically the whole thing takes place in one on one soundstage, I think. Yeah, and most of it's um, also from the point of view of Jeff in his apartment as well. Yes, almost all of it. Um, they they only break out of that a couple of times, and I actually noticed it this time. It was really jarring to me when they broke mm. out of it. For instance, there's the uh, most heartbreaking scene in the whole thing, where a little dog dies. Oh, um, and in that scene, there's close-ups on a couple of the people who live around the apartment building, mm-hmm. and I hadn't really noticed it before, and I noticed this noticed it this time and I was like that kind of takes you out of it because everything is so contained it's mm. this total sort of pot boiler and it goes very slowly but it's still yeah. fascinating the whole time it's it, great it's it, it is it's so well done you've got this really contained little story in this contained little area and there's only I think only about half a dozen actors even have speaking roles in it yeah. there's probably a dozen actors altogether it, it's the kind of thing that's almost um like a stage play in the way it's set up. It's so simple with the one set and the few actors. And and there's also some really simple um, stuff going on in the background, like a really simple musical theme that keeps coming around. And- well, all of the music is diegetic, all of yes. it, so, which means that it comes from within the film. Mm-hmm. There's no sort of score playing over the top of it until I think right at the end – Mm. It's sort of the score kind of takes over. Up until that point, the only time that you hear that theme that runs through it is from um, a character who's in the movie actually playing it. Yeah, it's it's awfully clever. And I think um, the other thing that is kind of struck me, because the first time I saw this movie was 1997, so a long time ago, before we really had serious internet and things like that, 
it actually it holds up really well and is fairly universal because of course the first thing you think is that if this you know in this day and age if I were holed up in my apartment for eight weeks with a broken leg I would just be online all the time I would find new depths of Tumblr I'd be doing all kinds of things but then I sort of got to thinking that it doesn't matter that he's not on Tumblr looking at people but it, but rather he's in his apartment building looking at people it all kind of comes back to the same fascination with other people's lives well the sort of the the concept i suppose is voyeurism as in we're sitting there watching the movie of this guy sitting there watching other mm-hmm. people's lives right. um you know which is getting into deeper film theory i suppose but that's but, kind of yeah. but one of the a, reasons why it's so well thought of indeed but on a more sort of general appeal level we are also watching these people who are hugely famous, Grace Kelly and James Stewart, really well-known people who have people watching them all the time. That's their job to be looked at. So kind of celebrity culture voyeurism in there too that they're starting to comment on. You know, we think because we see through these people through a window or through a screen that we have we know all about what's going on in their lives and we can make up a story that fits around that. And in the era that it was made, 1954, you – Coming at a time of when that celebrity culture is really just starting to happen, it's it, ha- it was in embryonic phases earlier on, but 1954, you're getting to the height of the studio system where people start to want to know about and read about I think, their favourite stars and watch them and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that was sort of a bit around before, like the studio system was really um, straight from the 30s and then the 40s had quite a bit of that culture mm. coming up too. So it sort of had some time to... It was a you know, germany kind before, of idea. Yeah, before yeah. the movie came out. But um, So just to get back to the movie, so what you've essentially got, you've got Jeff in his apartment um, with his broken leg watching everybody. You've got Grace Kelly as his beautiful socialite girlfriend, uh, and he's a, a photographer, so he travels around mm. taking photos of war zones and car crashes and all this sort of thing, and that's how he broke his leg. Uh, and he is having trouble with her relationship because he thinks she's not going to be able to cope with going off mm. to, you know, these kinds of places with him. And then you've got my favourite character uh, whose name is... Stella? Stella. Thank you. I was like, Velma. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> uh, Stella, who's his nurse mm-hmm. uh, to help him with his broken leg, and she comes by about once a day. And she's sort of got this whole, you know, homegrown philosophy thing. And then slowly Jeff is the one who sort of sees these things happening in the middle of the night and thinks that the man murdered his wife. And he slowly brings the other two into it with him. Mm-hmm. And at first they're both both protesting against it. And then as soon as they see something that they think is suspicious, they're suddenly caught up in it as well. And um, I think that Grace Kelly is actually possibly the most impressive in this movie because her storyline is maybe the most interesting one. Well, I actually noticed the script is actually structured around her story. So act one is her being highly suspicious of what's going on, worried that her boyfriend won't commit to her even though she wants to move in that direction. Act two, she's starting to was it she act two she sort of starts to come around. She starts she gets a bit of an interest in it, but she's still she's still like, you know what? this is wrong, watching people out the window all the time isn't the right thing to do. We need to close this down and focus on our relationship for a while. And the third act, she's gone, 
all the way in. She's she's like, oh my gosh, I can see there has been a murder over there, and she starts investigating. She's his you know legs and eyes and ears because he can't go anywhere, and it, the story actually follows her as much as it does anything. And she's great. I mean, she's the one who, when mm. when they, she goes out to see what's, um, she and Stella go out to see what's buried in the garden because that's one of the little sort of plot points in the, through the movie. And then when they don't find anything, she's the one who goes sneaking into the window, mm. into the apartment and starts sneaking around the apartment. And she has all this sort of, she's really intelligent. They, you know, they go on in the movie about how perfect she is, but she's really actually cool. Like she doesn't just rest on her laurels, even though she's, could quite she's, easily do yeah, so. Yeah, she's clearly a very wealthy and beautiful socialite, but she's not – she's really smart. And I think the first time I noticed when I watched it this time, some scenes I would actually watch her in the mm. background while other people were talking, and you notice that she never drops character. She never stops working and listening to the other actors. I just – I was so impressed with the the level of commitment she had to the performance Yeah, as much as anything. Are you, I mean, and I guess it was interesting because you sort of watch how much effort goes into actually being Grace Kelly and, and why yeah. you can't just be Grace Kelly. You have There's a whole lot, level of charm and grace and effort and work that actually went into that. Yeah, and it's interesting because the, the role she's playing is so similar to who she was. You yes. Know? Um, and we're used to sort of seeing Jimmy Stewart I suppose if you're us, maybe other people who watch this movie aren't so used to him, but um, this was made when he was kind of older uh, and, you know, we've seen a lot of movies with Jimmy Stewart in them and Jimmy Stewart is, is sort of doing his Jimmy Stewart yeah, thing in I this movie. Yeah, I think if you were to remake this, and dig God, don't remake it, um, you would <laughs> cast someone like a George Clooney, someone you're used to, like an everyman yeah. who's kind of been around for a while. We know what we're getting with this guy and, yeah, it, it, precisely. Um. But again, these themes that the way these this couple's relationship goes, and it might have been that this was a time in the 1950s of of some social change, but the way this relationship goes is actually something that modern couples come up against all the time. The idea that on the one hand you might want to keep traveling around the world and chasing your dreams and having fun forever, as opposed to you have this person at home who loves you and who's interested in you know making the arrangement permanent. The idea of settling down versus continuing to have fun, the idea that you can't continue to have fun if you settle down. I think that's a really universal idea that kids, yeah. that universal, still speaks to us today. Universal theme with a lot more sexist overtones, though. I mean, yeah. this is movie has some really – every time I see it, every time I see it, I can't help laughing at the line where Grace Kelly goes, a woman never leaves her apartment without her favourite handbag, her jewellery, her makeup and her this perfume. and that, her perfume. And I was like, oh, my God, yes, we do. Although she – when I first saw her, I was like 15. She's like, a woman would never leave the house without her jewellery. And I didn't have any jewellery the last time I saw this. So I was like, yeah, I, no, I do. I leave the house without jewellery all the time. Now, although I have like a wedding ring and some nice, couple of nice pieces of jewellery, I actually don't leave the house without them. So The wedding of, ring thing I buy. The yeah, wedding like, ring, the fact yeah, that she, she left her wedding. She was left without a wedding ring. That yes. Was, yeah. That's, that's a perfectly legitimate plot point and, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And by the way, when he holds that up, um, when Thorwald, the murder suspect, yeah. holds that up, that thing is like the size of, you know, an enormous, like Andre the Giant's finger yeah. would fit into that ring. <laughs> it's huge. <laughs> so that you can see it, you know, from right. the other apartment. Exactly. But, which I just thought was funny. But, yeah, it, the wedding ring is fine. I buy that. But there's all this sort of this concept of all women must be like this right. that runs through the whole movie that's very – I was actually thinking it was an interesting I, – I think it 
pick, maybe I'm viewing this modernized, but to me, it picks up on a time of social change where, because I mean, there's even comments like modern wives don't nag, they discuss. And um, you see these newlyweds who you know, behave in really quite a stereotypical way up to a point, And then there's a nagging wife stuff. But I was trying to work out like all, all the way along, whether this was a reflection of the times or a commentary. I, it could easily, very easily be read as a commentary on the state of marriage, on it domestic could. violence, on... You also have to keep in mind that it's Alfred Hitchcock, who mm. is also notoriously pretty sexist. Indeed. Uh, so I don't I don't know how much... Maybe it's not... Ri- is it written by him? I uh, don't I'm believe not sure. so, but if, I have my We might have to look into that because that might be... It might be something that's coming through from the uh, script. I mean... No, it's not written by him. It's written by a guy called John Michael Hayes. Well, maybe John Michael Hayes was interested in social... In reflecting the social changes. But mm. I, I, I feel a bit like that's giving too much credit to a man who was notoriously horrible to women. Mm, and his actresses in particular. And his actresses in particular, which actually... Mm. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just me you know, putting my own thing into it. But it seems like Grace Kelly handled that better than a lot of the actresses Mm. that he had. And uh, also her role in this is much less in the type of Hitchcock blonde sort of mould that he normally would Mm. be interested in. She's She's not that sort of frigid kind of cold character. She isn't – I mean, she's in the beautiful outfits, but they're not the very constricting sort of beautiful outfits in Vertigo and things like Mm. that. She has her own sort of style. And, of course, the costumes are by Edith Head. Oh, and they're they're delicious, like gorgeous. This movie is responsible for so many of my formative interests, I think, because the outfits are amazing and she's so gorgeous and has this wonderful jewellery. And I I think they pulled like – a a Christian Dior collection basically off the runway and put it on her. Mm. It was almost almost like an ad for her, but uh, ad for, sorry, the company. But yeah, she, she really is kind of different because she's bubbly and friendly and like a social kind of mm. person. And, and that's not like, um, well, that's not like Janet Lee in, in Psycho. It's not like, um, I keep wanting to say Marnie, but that's not, no, not Marnie, the woman from Marnie. What's the actress? Tippy Hedren oh. from The Birds yes. and Marnie. She famously kind of went mad working yeah. with Hitchcock. Well, that sort of makes but sense. But Grace, Grace, I think. I mean, well, the mind you, Grace Kelly's career only lasted a couple more years than this. So, But I think there's also a sense that Grace Kelly kind of knew who she was going into this. Yeah. Whereas I have a feeling that, that uh, Hitchcock, because of his really sort of violent kind of tendencies, uh, not in terms of physical violence, but, you know, emotional violent mm. tendencies uh kind of he would browbeat women who weren't quite as secure and confident and yeah. confident and so i think that might be where that line is whereas grace kelly was like well she was already whatever. confident she was playing confident yeah, yeah. and, and, really- the, and this character is very much confident in herself she's not so much in the relationship because she's really in love with this man who may not be able to commit to her but she mm. still knows who she is and she you know really kind of fights back quite vehemently. Mm. And, uh, and, yeah, no, I... And that's another reason why I love this, is the women, the female characters in this are so strong. Yes. Uh, even though what you're seeing, the tableau, most of the women are kind of um, not as strong as the two in the apartment. Mm-hmm. We ha- They have a lot of problems in that sort of apartment block across the way. Mm. Uh, the, the Both Stella and 
uh, Grace Kelly's character is Lisa. called Lisa. That's right. Both um, Stella and Lisa are both really sort of strong, independent characters. Mm. Stella is this has this whole philosophy around you know common sense, and she's this nurse, and she's got all these sorts of ideas about, and they're not always right about no. how men and women act and what you should do and that sort of thing. But she knows exactly who she is, and she knows what she believes, and she knows that mm. she can take on any you know man that's out there. Right. She's she's actually like a deliciously grounded counterpoint to yeah. Grace Kelly's character, and she's so funny. Like the line when she says, "When I married my husband, we were maladjusted." Misfits. Misfits. And then she goes, we're still maladjusted misfits and we've loved every minute of it. And I'm like, yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. (laughs) I love her. She's great. She really is. She just has this fabulous kind of appeal. There is actually another character who pops out in and out of the apartment. It's his detective friend. But he almost doesn't seem important enough to mention, like, in in the face of of these women. He's just kind of there to, I don't know, add realism to the plot. (laughs) Make sure something happens in the end. Give, he's also there to give them somebody to bounce off who continues to disbelieve right yeah, until the until end. Yeah, until the end. Yeah. So, like, you still have to have somebody there who's going to be the voice of, you know, cynical Reality. reason yes. while everybody's Cynicism. getting caught up in this story. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, it, it's great because it sort of builds so slowly and then by the end you're just riveted on the edge of your seat watching everything happen. Mm. And yet it just doesn't – it builds so naturally – Mm. Like nothing sort of happens that seems really forced or faked or anything like that. Well, this is, I think, again, what I was getting back, getting at at the beginning. You don't see the effort at all. Mm. You just, you don't, you can't see the act breaks in the script or what they're trying to achieve with something or where something's going. You, it just moves along. It's just these people living their lives, and it builds and builds and builds. To a climax. Yeah. And it's sort of a masterclass in filmmaking. Yes. Uh, and there's this other thing that I noticed this time where there's the, the stories kind of interweave into each other. Yep. And when Grace Kelly, Lisa, Lisa, when Lisa tries to break into the apartment, at the same time in the apartment below, there's this woman that they call Miss Lonely Hearts who is you know had a series of heartbreaks and yeah, she's is very lonely attempting and, suicide and she's time. attempting suicide at the time so they get distracted by something that has been building mm-hmm. throughout the the movie and feels completely natural in that setting and yet it's perfect for the plot at that moment so that they don't notice the world coming home to threaten lisa yeah so it's, it's like it's just and then the you know the scenes of the dog you just think a cute little bits with a dog running around and that sort of ties in and everything kind of comes together in this really neat kind of way without feeling really forced like a lot of films do. Mm, yeah, and there are all these um, weird little characters in the other apartments are all there for a reason and they all build the picture of the world and the way he looks at the world and the story and what's going on. Except possibly the ballet dancer. I um, still can't figure Ms. out. Torso. Well, she's She's only really there to be a reflection for Lisa. Yes, sort of a bit of eye candy. And though and. And then this to provide that nice little coda at the end where her soldier boyfriend comes home and after all this time trying to impress all these other men, she just wants to be with her ordinary-looking little man, which is kind of sweet. And then, But then, of course, you've got the um, composer who's, uh, again, I hadn't really thought about him so much before. And it could just be that I haven't seen it in a long time, but anyway. He's an interesting allegory for Jeff as well because he is an, a man who is ageing and he's got this dream of a creative career and it's not getting him anywhere and he's stuck in this studio apartment 
in some dodgy neighborhood and he's working away and working away and, and getting nowhere so he just drinks and parties and distracts himself until eventually he actually does get somewhere by persevering and keeping on going and working on this piece of music and, and by the end we see that he's actually sold finally a piece of music but his his allegory is similar to Jeff's in terms of you know wanting to follow a dream even though it might not be and, and then having that come butting right up against the reality of life and getting older and settling down and not being able to pay your rent yeah he's uh and then there's that cute little coda as well where miss lonely hearts gets stopped from committing suicide by the music so it seems like they kind of almost affect each other yes in a way which is sweet but uh yeah it's it's sort of i think i still think my favorite scene in the movie in spite of all these things that i said uh, is the scene where the dog dies which is really sad but there's this wonderful bravura performance from this woman that you don't barely see in the movie who's Mm -hmm. who just goes ranting about the state of the neighborhood in this day and age and she's just like nobody cares about each other anymore did you kill the dog just because he liked you because she of course doesn't know about the murder thing but it's it's this moment of just standing up to the man and talking about the the crumbling standards in our society Mm. in 1954 and which now we look back on as like this golden age oh you know we should go out like there's all all this conservative push to go back to the 19 1950s and in the 1950s they were saying oh the falling world is falling apart and look at all this social change and wives don't nag anymore they discuss but yeah she does this amazing um monologue i guess is where it's the one moment where everyone in the apartments stops living their own lives in their own little boxes and comes to the window and listens and she calls them out on this mm. voyeurism where they just look at each other's lives in little boxes rather than actually actively taking an interest in their neighbours and caring about each other instead of just looking at each other, actually engaging and caring and trying to help. Yeah, and the the, the only person who does anything like that in the neighbourhood seems to be the gossip next door, mm. uh, which is funny. But, yeah, it, it's sort of an interesting – I like that scene a lot. Every time it comes up, I sit there and I'm really anxious about it because I don't want to see the dog die because you never kill a dog in a movie. It's so much more heartbreaking than anything else you could I think possibly – always kill a dog in the movie because it is more heartbreaking than anything else you could possibly kill off. Yeah, but if you're going to do it, you have to do it well. I mean mm. – it's so much worse than – but, yeah, it's always so sad to see the dog die, always, or the cat or the pet of some yeah, description. It's always just so much more heart- heartbreaking. Well, yeah, because it's it's killing an innocent creature as opposed to, you know, a human with all their <laughs> complexities and difficulties and – Makes me think of Harry Potter. Perfection, which oh, – The innocent creatures are always the first casualties uh, first of casualties war. Of, oh, okay. When he kills the unicorn at the oh, – when yes. Voldemort kills the unicorns. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't really know where to go from the dog dying. But coming back to the yeah. um, the dog dying, the innocent thing, I think yeah. the other reason why we get so much more heartbroken is we understand why people kill people. Even though we know it's bad, mm. the person who is being killed often, you know, has an understanding of why that's happening. Yes. Even though it's awful. And sometimes they don't, but they understand a lot of the time, you know, that people kill other people and it's bad, mm. um, which is why it's so bad killing kids and killing animals and things is because, because they just don't understand what's happening. But, yeah, it got me this time because this time, like, I don't even have my own pet, but I live with a pet and I was just like, oh, 
God, if someone ever did something to the cat, I would be... I know, now you know how I feel. Yeah, oh my Um, goodness. The thing that I noticed most in this viewing, because I only saw it a few months ago, uh, was that at the end there's a couple of reaction shots that are sped up. Oh, Which yeah. was so weird. Was that just this print or was I it? I don't know. I don't remember it ever happening before, but I don't know whether I've just overlooked it or blocked it out. But there's this weird thing where right at the end of the movie, there's all these reactions from the neighbours and they, they're mm. one and a half speed or something. They look so weird. Yeah, I, I just figured that was something the problem with the plot, the, the print we were watching. But, but it's only in like a couple of shots. Yeah. It's not for the whole scene. Oh, I don't it's know. only in a couple of bits there, so yeah. it's really strange. I, I don't know. I think I just blamed that on sort of 1950s movie making, really. But although <laughs> this is not a movie where anything is done by accident, yeah, exactly. And this is this is one of these reasons why this movie is so important to me because it's the first movie where I it ever sort of clicked for me that what you see on screen, everything you see on a movie screen is absolute or here is absolutely deliberate yeah. and put there for a reason. And this is a movie with incredible attention to detail. Mm. So I don't think that is doesn't seem like it would be by accident there's this other bit mm-hmm. where uh the detective comes over and and grace kelly is heating brandy yes and i can't help giggling every time i see it because they're standing there just like wiggling the glasses of brandy in their hands for cu- a couple of minutes yeah where they just have this totally serious conversation and they're sitting there wiggling the brandy and i'm like <laughs> there's actually a couple of it's a- it's not the only time. There's actually a couple of occasions where they're the nurse or Grace or something are actually doing something really ordinary while having another conversation. Like I, th- I remember seeing Grace Kelly do something. I can't remember what it was. It was something really like basic and peasant-like that Grace Kelly would never have done in real life. It was kind of weird, but again, it's not been put there by accident. It's got them kind of doing it's, ordinary yeah, things while they're, talking they're about a silly fairly- things. They're having a fairly boring conversation, I suppose. Right. Where it, I mean, really, that scene is just there for for the detective to go, "You're all wrong," and for them to go, "No, we're not." So I yeah. suppose having them do something at the same time sort of made it yeah. more pointed, I guess. And there's this very awkward bit at the end where the detective is like, "Let's all have a drink and be friends," and they're all like, "No, no," uh, which is great. But yeah, it, I just it looks funny. I always yeah. giggle. Like, I'm giggling thinking about it now, just them mm. standing there wiggling. It was just funny yeah. to me. Well, there is some – compared to a modern movie, there's a whole lot more time devoted to just them having conversations and the things – scenes will actually run on a lot longer than they might in a modern movie. We just saw Stoker. We did just see Stoker. <laughs> so when you say, like, things like – this is a modern the, movie. Yeah, this I'm is like- the thing that sort of gets me. A lot of the movies that we revere from the past have – you know, things that go on longer and all that sort of thing. And I suppose there's this theory of, you know, now we're this um, ADD society where we can't pay attention to things. And lots of our movies are very quick cut stuff. But at the same time, if you look back to the 50s, I guarantee you you're going to find 10 bad movies for every great one that you find. And I know that (laughs) because I used to get the Turner Classic Movies channel and they used to mix up classic with old. We might just wrap it up for Rewindow. I think we're getting low on time. So your rating? Uh. Five stars. Yay, it's five rear window. Stars. Yeah. I don't know if anybody could give it less than five stars. And I will agree with that and give it – I think this is our first five-star movie. No, we did some like it hot. Oh, yeah, that was a five-star movie as well. Yeah, this is us, old movies, five stars, <laughs> classics. <laughs> there will be some movies that come out in our time that we will give five stars to. Absolutely. There will be. It's just that these are the ones we remember because these are the ones that, you know, everybody remembers. Mm -hmm. And they really are classics for a reason. Yeah. So 
Thank you very much for listening to Silver Screen Queens. We've been watch- we've watched Rear Window this week, uh, directed by the legendary Alfred Hitchcock and released in 1954. If you want to know anything more about tonight's episode or us, you can visit our website, silverscreenqueens.com. If you'd like to read Katie's reviews of maybe not this movie, but pretty much every other movie she watches, you can go to her blog, which is silverscreenqueen.wordpress.com. If you want to get in touch with either one of us, you can do that on our Facebook page, or you can follow us on Twitter at screen underscore queens. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Bye.